Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 1 through 8. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him, Peace be to you, and peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast today. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, we just come before you today. Lord, I pray that our hearts be humbled. I pray that we come um, the spirit of, of learning, of finding out what you have for us this morning in your word. Um, I pray for Mark. Um, I pray that the Holy Spirit would move through him, that it would be your words through Mark and not Mark's words. Um, I just thank you for this body. Uh, what a joy it is, Lord, that we get to gather here um, every week. Um, I pray that we would just encourage one another, sharpen one another. And Lord, most of all, I pray that we would grow closer to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we have the opportunity to read the Word of God. We have the opportunity to understand who God is. We have the opportunity to read about the life of David, how God used him, how God spoke to him, how God changed him, God, how God called him, how all of this of David's life, everything after David's life, everything in the prophets, it all points in one direction to Christ. We get to see how that connects. So this time together is more than just listening to a boring guy talk up front. I mean, that's probably there. But it's a chance for us together as God's people to read God's Word and not go immediately to, what does this mean to me and for me? Because as we've tried to remind ourselves over and over again, the Bible is not about me. That this worship service is not about me. This time together is not about me and what I can get out of it. This is a worship service of God that we get to read His Word that we get to praise Him. 
and we get to understand him better. And then from that, we're able then to understand, okay, so now how do I, one, view myself? How should I live my life in view of who God is, what he has done? Not only in my life, but in the life of David and all of those in between. Like, I want this to sink in. We get to hear God's words. You know, the God who created the universe is speaking to us. He's speaking to us through his word, and we get a chance to study that. And then on top of it, every guy, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe that's too, in generalization, every guy reads the title of my sermon, Vengeance and Blood, and you think of Rambo, right? Like, yeah! And I told Katie this week, you know, what my sermon title was, she kind of looked at me, and I'm like, no, I think it's awesome. And she's like, oh, like, what's that going to be about? Vengeance and blood. It's not either of those of what we're thinking with vengeance and blood. So let's get into the Word. Let's hear what God has to say. Learn from David's life about how God is revealing himself through the history. Because last week we learned how God is providential, right? That means he's, he's got his hands in all of history. So he's in David's life. He's in the life of Samuel. He's in the life of Saul. He's in the life of Israel. And in the world, there's nothing that is out of his control. He is totally sovereign and he is actively at work in history. He doesn't stand back and go, boy, I wonder how it's all going to work out. His hand is actively working in every moment of David's life. And so it is here. Samuel's death is a momentous moment in the history of Israel. And we have to recognize one of the, one of the rules when you study scripture is if you're reading something and then something shows up, like a verse shows up and you go like, that's weird. So you, you, we learn about David and, and um, uh, the, in chapter 24 and his life and God's providence and we read in 25, and we're going to get there about Abigail and Nabal, and they're like, okay, and then stuck one verse in the middle of it. It's like, like what an obituary. And Samuel died. And everybody mourned. And then everybody went home. Like, why? Why would this be put here? Samuel was the last in a long line of judges. And he guided the people through the transition from judges to kings. And so with his death, there is a political transition in Israel from judges who ruled to kings who ruled. And with his death, the time for David's ascension grows ever nearer. You start to anticipate, okay, Samuel, he's... He's dead. He's gone. The judges are over. Now the, the kings have to start rising. But we know that Saul is, not, is an anointed king, but he's not worthy of it. God has left him, and, and God has anointed David. And so when is this going to happen? You build the anticipation of who David is and how God's going to use him. And yet David, a man after God's own heart, a man of God's choosing, a man who even Saul acknowledges is more righteous than himself, a man when given the chance to kill Saul, instead cuts off the corner of his robe. We saw that last week. Even David, this David, is revealed 
as imperfect and easily swayed by strong emotions. The time of shearing is when all the hard work, all the time and the cost of keeping sheep is recouped. That Nabal had 3,000 sheep shows that he is an extremely wealthy man. But it takes more than just a few shepherds to protect such a large number of sheep. In fact, we're told that under David's protection, Nabal's men missed nothing of the time that they were in, uh, all the time that they were in Carmel. And now David is asking Nabal for food as repayment for his efforts. Now, don't hear this as David is being a mob boss, okay? Okay, you, you pay me, I'll protect you. That's not what David is doing. He's not, he's not acting as an as a, as a exacting payment as a mob boss would uh, for protection. David is asking Nabal to willingly give part of his large profit, which David and his men had a large role in securing. Nabal would not have 3,000 sheep, if David and his men weren't there to protect them. His request is not unreasonable. And Nabal can certainly afford it. And yet, Nabal refuses David. So, we're going to take the next section. Open your Bibles to chapter 25. And we're going to read verses 9 through 22. When David's young men came, remember, they go to Nabal, and they said this to Nabal in the name of David, and, they, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men returned away, turned away and back, came back to, and told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we, as they, as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste. It took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and, and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. 
God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Nabal says, who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? He's a disobedient servant of his master. Okay, these are rhetorical questions. He knows who David is. I mean, he calls him by his father's name for crying out loud. And that he's a servant of Saul. He's surrounded by men who are discontent, in debt, and in distress. David is a rebellious man, Nabal is thinking, who surrounds himself with the rabble of society. I owe this low life nothing. And I'm certainly not certainly not going to give him anything that I own. Nabal insults David. David is not acting as a mob boss. Essentially, Nabal has rejected David as the one true king, and this insult is too much for David to handle. So he calls his men to battle, vowing to kill every male of Nabal's household. God, do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I have so much as one male, I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So let's just say, and call it what it is, David, David overreacts to the situation. Nabal's insult drives David to seek vengeance and blood. His oath before God is a selfish oath. And it's self-serving. David is the true anointed king. He's chosen by God to lead the nation of Israel. He is the one, he is the one whom God has chosen to continue the blessing of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's through David, David's line, that the long-anticipated Messiah would come and would save God's people. But David is also an imperfect king. He allows the insult of a worthless, godless man, because that's what that means. The first time we hear that is about Eli's sons at the beginning, that they were worthless fellows who did not know God. Nabal doesn't know God. He doesn't worship God. He's a Calebite, not a Jacobite, if you want to say. He is not of the people of God. He's worthless, godless And David has allowed this godless man to dictate his actions, seeking revenge by his own hand, and then asking God to bless that revenge. David's human. And this is the first sign in the book of Samuel that hits to a problem that's going to come in the future. Because You have Saul, who's worthless, who God has left, and you have David, whom God has joined, and as you're reading, he makes good choice after good choice, godly choice, godly choice, godly choice. God confirms, you are the anointed one. Everybody knows David's going to become king, and this anticipation of he is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the one who's going to restore God's people. He's the one who's going to do what God promised way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And then this happens. But praise God for the godly and discerning women in our lives. Amen, guys? David lets his emotions 
and his hurt feelings get the best of him, and Abigail steps in because her intervention keeps David from committing a, if you want to say, a greater sin that in the end, if he continues down this path, will actually mean his life is forfeit. So, verses 23 through 35. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. You know, guys, when your wife recognizes that you're a worthless fellow, that's a problem. For as his, as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, so here's her vow. As your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood, blood guilt and from saving you, saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all that the good has, he has spoken concerning concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience, now listen to this, for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who, who sent you this day to meet me. There's the providence of God. God sent Abigail to stop David from doing this. Verse 33, Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, me truly by morning there had not been truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male and that David received from her hand what she had brought him and he said to her go up in peace to your house see I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition David's rush to revenge put him on the path to commit the sin of blood guilt. Now, what is blood guilt? To understand, we need to go back even further in the Old Testament to Numbers chapter 35. Numbers 35, verses 33 and 34. And I'll just read this. Numbers 35, verses 33 and 34. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. 
You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So according to this law in Numbers 35, the punishment for polluting the land by bloodshed through murder, specifically through murder, can only be removed or atoned for by the blood of the murderer. This is capital punishment. Essentially, in this situation, David is about to commit murder. Yes, Nabal insulted David. Yes, Nabal is a worthless and godless man, but that does not justify David's desire to murder not only Nabal, but every male in his household. And so praise be to God for Abigail that this blood guilt did not go on David because she said, calm yourself down, man. I mean, that's essentially what she says. It was more humble, and she offers herself. And she said, let the guilt be on me, not on my husband's household because he's a worthless fellow. Let it be on me, and look, I'm giving this to you to prevent you from making a bigger mistake. She recognizes the situation in which her husband has put everyone, and then she quickly works to make things right by gathering food for David and his men, a lot of food, by the way, a lot of food, and pointing out David's sinful path. So women, hear me this. If you are a godly woman and your husband, I'll keep it to your husband, but your husband is sinning, Abigail's example of humility and yet strong forcefulness not to save herself, but to prevent sin. Follow her example. And men, follow the example of David. He listened, he recognized, and he held back. Abigail rightly discerns that David's actions are driven out of desire for vengeance and points out what David could not see himself. I'll tell you, ladies, when guys are angry, again, generalization. Okay, when I get angry and my wife gets that look on her face, I know she's going, you're being a little unreasonable, Mark. Think this one through. Control yourself a little bit. In the previous chapter, David showed amazing restraint in sparing Saul's life, even saying, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between you and me. He left judgment up to the Lord. And now here, just a chapter later, the next chapter, he's lost all discernment of how vengeance is not his to take, but God's. Abigail's discerning and godly actions spared the lives of many people and kept David from committing a sin that would cost him his life. And if it cost him his life, there goes the line of Judah and Christ eventually. Now you could say, well, God will find a different way. But he didn't. He didn't. Because this, David is the one that God has chosen to have the line of the Messiah come through. And to David's credit, he doesn't belittle 
Abigail. He doesn't look down on her. He listens to her. He receives her gift. And then he returns to his stronghold. And Abigail, and again, this is, this is, a, this is the beauty of Abigail. She returns home to confront her godless husband, but, and not in a way that we would think, okay? So if, if I do something wrong and it causes harm to my family, my wife is going to sit me down and have a little conversation with me, right? Abigail doesn't do that. She's still respectful, even of a godless, worthless man like Nabal. So let's look at this, 36 through 44, to the end of the chapter. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. So he can afford to give some food. He didn't even miss what Abigail had already given to David. He's having a big party, thinking he's all that. And Nabal's heart was merry within him. That's code for he's drunk. And he says, for he was very drunk. That's also code for he was very drunk. (laughs) So she told him nothing at all until the morning. And in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him all these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. Did you catch that? He was insulted by Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. We're not going to go into this. I mean, we'll read it. We're not going to go into it. But this is, again, just another sign. He's already married and he takes a second wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaiden is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail returned or hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Another problem. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galeam. Not only does David leave Nabal in God's hands, but so does Abigail. She waits until he recovers from his drunken stupor so that when he is told, he is fully aware of the danger in which He put the entire household and his heart dies within him, whatever that means. He falls into a coma. He's still as a stone and he dies 10 days later. Vengeance was brought upon Nabal, but not by David. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22. Do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Through Abigail, God kept David from sinning against him, but God also avenged Nabal's rejection and insult of the Lord's anointed. Any act of vengeance on David's part is a sin because David is not seeking justice. He's seeking retribution. He's seeking payback. But when God acts out his vengeance, it is 
always right. You say, well, vengeance is a negative. No, vengeance is negative for us, but not for a holy, perfect, righteous God because He is always holy, He is always perfect, and He is always right in what He does. He never sins, and He never acts contrary to His absolute righteousness. That's why God can judge and we cannot when it comes to the souls of men. Vengeance is his. And where David was an imperfect and sinful anointed king, hundreds of years later, arrives this Jesus. And this Jesus is the perfect and sinless, long-awaited, anointed, anointed king. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ had no sin in him. None. Absolutely none. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Isaiah 53, verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, I'm trying to show by weight of this, and this is just four, by weight of texts in Scripture that speak of Christ not simply being a good man or a wonderful prophet, but as the perfect and sinless, long-awaited, anointed King of God's people. Jesus was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was spit upon, he was hit, scorned, backstabbed, betrayed, and belittled, just to name a few, and he never sinned in the midst of that. David has a worthless man insult him, and he loses his mind and wants to kill them all. Jesus never lashed out or took matters into his own hands. But instead, as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says, he entrusted himself to his Father who judges justly. Now remember, Jesus is God incarnate, and yet he submitted himself to the Father and allowed God, his Father, to take care of him. He left those who wronged him in the hands of the Lord. He did not take vengeance himself on those who wronged him. And as Nabal found out, those who reject the Lord's anointed and imperfect anointed king find themselves in the hands of a just, righteous, and vengeful God. If that's what happens to Nabal, what's going to happen when we reject the perfect, sinless, anointed king? When we are wronged, we want to see justice. We want to witness those who have hurt us to get their comeuppance, right? That's, 
That's where the seed of revenge begins to take root. We, we want, we've all been hurt before, and we want to see, I want to see them hurt like they've hurt me. We want to take matters into our own hands and to see it that quote-unquote justice is done, but all too often our seeking of justice is actually vengeance. In those moments, you and I are like David, seeking to right something by our own hands. Yes, we should strive for wrongs to be made right, but ultimately, we as God's people have to leave that kind of business in the hands of our righteous gods, the righteous God, do, do we not? I can hurt, I can belittle, I can give the comeuppance to somebody who has done the same to me, and it might make me feel good for a while. Has it changed their hearts? Or has it just made me more bitter and angry? A day is going to come, and this is, I think this is what we need to hold on to as God's people. Why do we not seek vengeance? A day is going to come when all the wrongs will be made right, when all who slander and insult us will receive their just punishment. But there is a greater day which should hold our attention far more than any earthly justice for being wronged. A day is going to come when the Lord will meet, uh, met out his eternal punishment on those who are worthless and godless like Nabal. A day is going to come when those who reject Christ will be judged before the very glory of God and the throne of God and they will be found wanting. David was focused on earthly things. And he missed the eternal. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, if you have a church background, this is very familiar to you. I'm not going to read it. It's a very long passage, but Jesus describes this eternal punishment as a great sorting of sheep and goats. Those who believe in and obey Christ are the sheep who will receive the inheritance of eternal life in the kingdom of God, which was prepared for them from the foundations of the earth. That's how it's described by Christ. But those who reject Christ as the anointed king are the goats who will be sent into eternal punishment in the fires of hell. I do not determine who's a sheep and who's a goat because I am not just and righteous. I am not a good judge of character when it comes to the eternal destination of souls. But God is. And He will sort. He will sort the goats from the sheep. I always tell people, I've had conversations with people who have been wronged continually. They're getting driven over. They're being, they don't, people don't know the truth. And I look like the bad guy. And I'm such a horrible guy. Nobody knows the truth of who I am. And I always say the truth always comes out. And if it doesn't come out while I'm here on earth, it will come out, come out in eternity. That as God's people, we look eternally more than we look in the here and now. We look past what's happening today 
to see what's going on in the future. Like David, we all too often live only in the here and now. We look at our present condition and we fail to think eternally. We look at the present condition of those who wrong us and fail to think eternally. For if they had rejected Christ as the Messiah, the perfect anointed King and the Son of God, they will receive the full righteous wrath of God's avenging judgment. Heck yeah, I am going fire and brimstone. Because we have to. The reality is, you may get, I may get vengeance on my own, and it does nothing for the soul of those that I received my vengeance from. Am I more concerned about me and my reputation? Am I like David? Or am I more concerned that that person maybe spending eternity in hell away from the glory and the love and the mercy and the grace and the joy that is Christ. We look too often in the here and now in my life and we miss that there is something beyond here. Those who receive the full righteous wrath of God's avenging judgment will receive eternal death. And so we should not seek vengeance. We should seek their salvation. Isn't that what Christ did? He's hanging on the cross. They are spitting and mocking him. And he says, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Should we not seek, we should not seek their punishment, but we should seek God's mercy and grace. As God's people, we should always be thinking eternally that those who reject Christ will receive eternal punishment. And that should drive us as God's people to let go of wrongs, to pray for the souls of those who wrong us, to pray that God would save them so that they do not receive their just punishment. We should pray that they too would find salvation. And let's be honest, just as you and I have, because let's put ourselves in the reality that before Christ, we were enable. We were godless. We were worthless. And we hated His anointed King. And no matter how moral and right we were, we were actually receiving the eternal punishment, rightly receiving the eternal punishment of eternal death. If you are a child of God, if you are saved, we used to be them. And we should beg God to forgive them. We should pray for their salvation, the same salvation that you and I have received because at one time God's vengeance was upon our own head. What is, what is justice? 
Well, let's say, what is vengeance? It's getting what I want. Justice is getting what I deserve. And when it comes to eternal justice, we all deserve hell. If it were not for Christ, do we realize that? How do we show sympathy to those who hate us? It's to realize that we were all once there. Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Can we let go of the hurts done to us or to those around us that we love? Can we let that go and leave them in the hands of a righteous God and show compassion and love and not let vengeance stir in our hearts and create a cancer which will eat us from the inside out. Make us unloving, uncaring, and the farthest thing from our Messiah. Because isn't that our call is to be more like Christ as his people? That each and every day we are being sanctified. That when we are belittled, when we are hurt by worthless fellows, (laughs) we don't lose sleep over that. We leave him in the hands of God because I know who I am. And praise God that I am not receiving the judgment that I justly deserve. Because instead, (laughs) think this one through too. What you and I deserved was put on Christ. He received the just punishment deserved for me. And he willingly took it. He never said, this is wrong, God. Take it out on Mark. He deserves that. He says, yeah, Mark deserves it. But I'm going to take it for him. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Father, I pray for us as your people. Oh, God, we so easily... We're, we're so easy like David. We get irritated. We get, we get insulted and we get angry and we want vengeance. And maybe we're not seeking to kill every male in the household. But Father, your word even says to have anger against your brother. To have anger of someone is just like murder. And how many times have we murdered our neighbor? How many times have we murdered our brother, Father? You know, and it is by your grace, Father, that vengeance that is due to us is not placed upon us. Not because we are perfect, but because your Son, who is perfect, took the vengeance meant for us upon himself, willingly, for your glory, for your goodness, for us as your people, to be called your sheep, to be called your children, 
And so, Father, help us as your people to recognize who we really are. We are saved, but we are saved by grace, not by works, not by goodness, not by our own morality, Father, but, but by you, undeservingly, and yet you gave it freely. Help us, Father, to see people in an eternal mindset and an eternal point of view and pray for their souls. Help us to recognize, put Abigails in our life, Father, men, women, and children, that, we, that they would point us in the, point our sin out to us, Father, so that we might repent and, and not sin against you. Help us, Father, to do it all for you. For you alone, we ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our final song? Mm-hmm.